Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1181, with guest Eileen Fisher. Recorded Monday, August 3rd, 2015. Yes, it's .NET Rocks. It is indeed. Yeah, I'm Carl Franklin. And I'm Richard Campbell. And uh, we're here for another hour. Eileen Fisher, our good friend, is back, and we'll invite her to come on in just a minute. But uh, how are you doing, my friend? I am up to my eyeballs in conference planning. We have too many things going on, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is coming out in August. In September, we've got Tech Intersection, and that's the intersection between architecture, IoT, and security, September 14th to 17th in Monterey, California. Yeah. That's one. All right. And, and then less than a month later, Amsterdam for Dev Intersection Europe, our first foray into Europe. So that's uh, uh, October 14 to 16 in Amsterdam. Looking forward to that. Doing a little angle brackets, and a little intersection. You know, that's going to be an amazing show as well. Yeah. And then the big one is the last week of uh, October, October 26th. That's uh, Dev Intersection in Vegas. And we're adding IT Edge to the equation. So I get to be the run as guy too. And uh, we have thousands of attendees for that show. It'll be huge. We're going to have so much fun this year. And that's the, not the only, that's just the events I'm directly working on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's others going on in the fall as well. I just get, go through them all. I don't think I'm going to be home ever. Yeah. Well, oh. that's the life we lead. There are worse problems in this world. I hope we see folks out at all of these shows. Come and say hi. Absolutely. Uh, I got something you might like for Better Know Framework, being a gamer guy. I do that thing with that stuff. Play that funky music. Yeah, play that funky music. <laughs> all right, dude, what do you got? Well, this is an... Uh, 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 little known video and i say little known because it's only got a thousand views on youtube which might sound like a lot but for what they're talking about it's about i think to get some more this is a windows 10 DirectX 12 api overhead test hmm. using a 980m benchmark and uh this is from extreme pc gamer yep so if you go to tinyurl.com slash win 10 game perf this was just published, uh, you know, we're recording this on the August 3rd. This was just published July 29th. So this is, uh, publishing the results of a benchmark test and they're pretty good. Now, don't ask me what it means because I have no idea. Nice. But how about 15 million draw calls per second? Wow. Does that sound like a lot to you? That's a, that is a large number. That's but- a pretty large number. 
But uh, yeah, and, it, and so much of this has to do with the hardware and not the operating system that it's hard to say, well, what would be the difference between Win 8 and Win 10 in this scenario? That um, is true, but it does give you a, a set of hardware and software to use if you want to get that performance. Yeah, to sort of trial the thing out. And of course, the big problem there is DX12, the DirectX 12 is only for Win 10, so mm-hmm. there's no other way to try it, really. Yeah, yeah I guess you're right. But it, the ball continues to move forward. It's interesting how since Win 7, Windows has gotten smaller and faster. Yep. And there are people to thank for that. Yeah, they've worked hard at it, too. Yeah. All right, good one, dude. All right, man, that's that's what I found. So who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off a show, 1127, a show we did with one Eileen Fisher. Never heard of her. we talked about defining your personal brand. I don't know. These names just come out of nowhere. What can you do? And generate a lot of conversation. You know, they, this, these personal development shows, folks are, are really enjoying them. Uh, yeah. David Gardner says, uh, I must confess I had a bit of trouble concentrating on this episode, largely because Eileen kept bringing up such good points that had me thinking deeply about the personal implications. I'm already on LinkedIn and involved in the developer community in a small way, but now I'm wondering if there are improvements I can make in how I present myself. The concept of having a personal brand is intriguing and caused me to reflect on a number of, quote, successful people that I know and wondering how strategic they've been in this area. Were they intentional in building a personal brand or did it just happen by accident that the things they did caused their personal brand to build a positive side effect? Mm. I suspect that I'll also be talking about and sharing this episode with some non-technical friends who I think would really get some inspiration out of it too. And thanks for the great topic. This, I think, is an awesome point, right? That how much, how much of personal brand is just emergent? That this is what you did. You know, I think back to you in the, the Carl and Gary's VB day. Oddly enough, got to be known as a VB guy. Right. right? Yeah. You yeah. know, I, one of the first things I wrote back in the 90s and, and did a lot of writing on was reporting tools, Crystal and Active and all those different tools. I started, I wrote a whole series of articles around that and oddly enough, got known as the reporting guy. Right. Sure. So, you know, I think your work certainly reflects some of that. Um, it's really a question of when you get to a point. I don't think I don't think you can set out wanting to set up a brand off the bat. I think right. you sort of find Just out where happens. you are yeah. and start taking it more seriously. Yeah, I agree. It happens. Uh, good, good conversation we we'll probably have with Eileen as we get into this. So, David, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social medias. We publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And you can comment there as well. We'll send you a mug. And also, you can tweet us. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. We read all our tweets and occasionally reply to some of them. And I'm kidding. We reply to most of them, actually. Uh, and that brings us to our guest today. Please welcome back Eileen Fisher, who is a longtime supporter of .NET Rocks, back to her Microsoft days. She recently appeared on the show talking about personal branding. Eileen is president of Fisher Consulting, a boutique consulting firm that focuses on marketing for the high-tech professional. She helps individuals and businesses enhance their reputations and garner additional patronage. She's a whiz at most things marketing and worked at Microsoft for almost 20 years before starting her own firm. Today, Eileen is going to talk with us about messaging to the business decision makers within companies. Most of you feel a comfort level with the technical decision makers, but the BDM often has the pen. Let's see what tips Eileen has for influencing this difficult audience. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you, Carl and Richard. Thanks for having me back on the show. I'm really pleased to be here. Love you guys. Love the format and your listeners. They have been fabulous in their response to my uh 
earlier talk, and I uh, am working with a number of them and really having a great time. And I got to say, after I talked to you, I went and updated my LinkedIn profile like a good guy, and <laughs> uh, that has turned out to be um, a good idea. And uh, you reminded us that LinkedIn isn't important just if you're looking to change jobs, but uh, it's a great way to attract customers as well. You got it. Very good. Yeah, that turned out to be a good idea. I saw a tool today that allowed you to rank your uh, LinkedIn profile. I'm sure we can put it up there as a resource. And it allowed you to just answer 10 questions and say whether your LinkedIn profile was really up to par. Hmm. And it was simple to answer. And it really gave you an honest, hey, dude, looks like you need to do some work or, you know, you can get by with this. So it might be an interesting resource to share. What's the tool? It's a, actually a LinkedIn tool that they've created. So I have to, I'll get to the URL and we'll post it out there. Sure. Awesome. So wh what kind of tips can you give us for interfacing with these decision makers? So many. So as you know, I'm doing consulting work now and I'm focused mainly on software development companies and individual software developers. And as we have worked with individual clients and companies around personal brand, a request has come up over and over again, and it has been around, how do I talk to the person who's making the buying decision? Right. How do I talk to the guy, as you say, who has the pen versus the technical person that I'm very comfortable with and I've been talking to for years? And so what we've begun to do is come up with frameworks and tips and tricks and ideas around how to help technical people talk to the business decision makers. And what I'd like to do today is give you seven of those tips, and we could honestly talk all day, but it'll give I'm you sure. a flavor, <laughs> so just to get you started. All right. Sound good? Absolutely. Lay it on us. All right. I'll lay it on you. So I recently read in a business-to-business -business selling research report that there are six to nine people involved in every decision to purchase a technology product or project. Ooh. So that means six to nine people and 50% of them are technical. So that means 50% of them have no technical knowledge whatsoever. Yikes. So you have to plan for a conversation with those people in order to close business or move your project forward if you're within a company. So I'm going to focus on the seven areas today and talk through them. I chose to focus on writing content for your website because your website is still according to everything I read, the number one place people come to find information about you and your company and your services. So I chose to apply these seven topics to your website and web content, but they absolutely can be applied to presentations, to communications of any kind, and we'll explore that and stop me if I'm going too deep on the web stuff and we'll uh, expand it a little. Okay, sure. Okay, so the first one I'm going to talk about is not confusing your offerings and your audience. So when you think about web content and any communication about what you're selling, offering, developing, both your offerings and your audience need to be addressed. Your offering is really what you're selling or what you're providing and what your audience will buy from you today or as a result of this communication. Unfortunately, you can't just talk about it broadly. You have to have your end audience in mind. You have to have in mind what their goals are. And the business decision maker has vastly different goals 
than the technical decision maker. Right. The business decision maker, he's thinking about, number one, is it really necessary? Yeah. That is the number one question they ask. Is, do we really need it? Because they're ready to cut it. It's the least expensive thing you can do is not do it. <laughs> exactly. And that's the best approach to try to knock down the idea. Unless you can convince them that by not doing it is going to be more expensive. Exactly. Money. Money comes in number two. If you can convince them you're either going to save money or it's going to cost more money. If you don't, you're right up there with them. And then uh, area number three that they look at is, will we be further ahead in our industry with the technology? Will we be more productive? And those are literally out of report after report, the three things the business decision makers think about. So when you write down uh, you know, on a website or a proposal, perhaps, what you're offering, forget all the technical lingo. You have to up-level part of your presentation to say all those three things, saving money, increasing productivity. Yes, we really need it. So you really have to think about those things and think about your audience. Yeah, there's a, I mean, I've dealt with plenty of organizations where it was about saving money. I've also dealt with some where, where there was almost a political angle to it of this is a marquee thing for our company. It makes us look like we're at the leading edge. Mm. Absolutely. And then they think about the possibility of uh, talking to their colleagues and saying, hey, guess what we just did in the banking industry and being the technology leader for that industry. I definitely have had the experience in the investment side of things with uh, with wealthy investors where the clubhouse conversation was arguably the most important thing to them. You yep. better believe yep. it. You, you won't have it stated, but it's an un unstated fact. It's just one of those little little nuggets of can you give them a line, you know, something, some way they can ex express what they're involved in. Exactly. And you have a really good point, Richard, because one line is sometimes all they need because, frankly, they don't understand more than that. And don't want to. I nope. think that's the one that people, you know, it's like, I'm going to explain this to you. Please don't. Yeah, right. I don't, exactly. I don't want to know. Just give them what the benefits are, what the cost reductions are going to be, and, uh, and you know, how they should look into it further. And let the technical people give them the technical information. Yeah. I mean, most of the time I found with the true business owner type, he's just looking at his trusted technical resources saying, is this really what it is? And he goes, yep. And you want it? Yep. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Done. <laughs> okay. So let's go on to number two. Okay. Number two seems so obvious, but we, we shy away from it. And that is using consistent terminology. Ah, uh, yes. In the technology industry, how many names are there for everything, right? Right. And, <laughs> and it's okay. It's okay when you're talking to another geek, right? Another technical person, another software developer. You can talk about things in that way. Business decision makers do not want to be confused and to look like they don't know what you're talking about. Right. So the minute you change up the terminology, you're going to lose them. I also think they distrust it too. Like that's a sh that's almost a con game the moment you do that. You know, it, exactly. You're absolutely right, Richard. And I've also noticed an aversion to the people that I'm dealing with anyway, an aversion to using sort of in vogue terms that have lost their meaning and the meaning's been hijacked by by other people. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, if you if you're if you're constantly using the clichés of the business to describe something that's revolutionary, it's not going to sound too revolutionary. Just sounds like a marketing pitch. Right. 
Absolutely. There is definitely a balancing act between those two things, uh, one way or the other. I almost think it, maybe it's in, inside of the tech audience. It's almost like part of being in the club is knowing all the synonyms for a given technology. And mm. so you flip between them in the conversation because it's part of being in the cool club. Maybe so. It's not a good okay. thing when you're talking to people that aren't in the club. Alienating the guy who makes the decision, not actually a not, good idea. Not a good idea. Don't do it. <laughs> you, then, you know, probably a good, a good idea is to get to know this person through their online resources and figure out what kinds of terms they use themselves and respond to. I don't think that's, you know, cheating or anything like that. I think the more you can talk to people using their language and their terms, uh, that's a, just going to be better for everybody, better for understanding. So Right on. You are right on. Do your research before you talk to people. We'll get you miles of leverage. Okay, let's talk about the third one. The third one is closely related, and that is do not use industry jargon. Hey, I was just talking about that. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. This is the fastest way to confuse business decision makers and make them feel stupid. Right. You just can't do it. You have to remember when you're talking to your technical audience, Use it away. Go for it. Oh, yeah. Do whatever that's, you want. Yep. That's a little bit different than what we were talking about. That's, yeah, exactly. Using the technical jargon when you're talking to a business guy, he, you're making him feel dumb. You, you just turned him off. He's walking away. He's not listening to anything more. Yep. He wants a simple language to help make a decision. He wants something concise and simple. And then save your jargon for your white papers, your blog posts, anything geared towards your technical readers, because you absolutely have an avenue there. Save it for that. Got it. All right. The next one is an interesting thought. And some people struggle with this one. And I've had um, clients who struggle with this one. And it is not to use technical renderings, screenshots, but instead try to use original pictures and pictures of people and people engaged with technology. So you're trying to describe a technical term, and oftentimes you want to describe it by showing how something works technically. You want to whip out Visio, and you want to have a diagram and things like that. But frankly, again, you're going to lose your business decision maker. You need to think about just using pictures that make that business decision maker say, that looks like me. That looks like the kind of thing I do every day. And that's the way you want to explain it to them. Again, use your Visio charts for your technical readers and your white papers. Do not use them on the front page of your website and do not use them when you're talking to the guy with the pen. So are you meaning like we need to take photographs of people using our software? You got it. Original photographs are worth a fortune and they really don't cost that much to engage someone and have spend half a day doing something like that. Now, this is really for a serious business in a website, but absolutely. And if worse comes to worse, there is stock photographs that you can, uh, you know, rent and you will have exclusive rent rights to them. So no one else will be using them and you'll have people engaged with technology. It makes that business decision maker feel at home. I just don't know that, you know, hiring photographers are just not that expensive, like stock photos aren't cheap either, right? no. especially if you're just trying to get people active taking, uh, you know, using your app. I, it sounds like a few hundred dollars in a day. I think it. I think it is, you know, and I think you have to think about the investment. And for some people, it's not worth it. But I'll tell you what, you'd be better off using uh, word art and ex- uh, sort of uh, extensive use of boxes and colors than you would be using 
uh, technical renderings and Visio diagrams that they just don't understand. Yeah, I think there's a real art form to making a diagram of any kind that is consumable by non-technical people. Absolutely. And they are, um, you've seen a lot of the infographics and they have become increasingly popular with marketing people because they seem to tell a story in a simple way to almost anybody. Right. Yeah, I I think it's very powerful. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Harvest. Harvest is a time tracking tool built for understanding where your time is going. And for developers, it takes the pain out of time tracking. You can start a timer right from issues in Jira or GitHub without searching for your timesheet. Not only will you understand how much time you're spending on client work, you'll be able to turn your billable hours into an invoice from Harvest in minutes. Harvest integrates with PayPal and Stripe to make it easy to get paid. And .NET Rocks listeners get a special deal. Create a free 30-day trial at getharvest.com, and after your trial, enter code .NET Rocks, spelled out, to save 50% off your first month. We're jumping back to that first item, too, is, you know, it's not just helping people understand stuff, because often they don't want to understand it all that much, they just don't want to feel stupid, is that almost a fear piece or a regret piece about you have to do this or your competitors will beat you? Hmm. Is that really part of this equation? Absolutely. Your competitors, we frequently build into some of the messaging framework that if you don't do some of these things, let's be clear, your competitors will. Your customers will be buying. They'll be buying from your competitors. Right. So it's a very valid point. It's just a question of how not to be too heavy-handed with I that. Agree. But that's you, you don't want to constantly go, you know, in the end, especially if you're selling services to a company, it's like, well, why don't I just go to your competitors and they'll buy my service? <laughs> yeah, never lead with fear. And that get, that gets to just the, the 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 sense that comes with experience that you get, you know, that sixth sense about about just how far to go. Absolutely. I, I like the line never lead with it not leading with fear, but you can't ignore it either. And you can intimate it without being over the head with it too. Yeah. Absolutely. I've built it into many messaging frameworks. There are subtle ways to bring it up and remind them your customers will be buying from someone. Right. Yeah. These, these products sell no matter what. And generally speaking, business decision makers are thinking about the competition far more than the tech folks are too. That's true. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Let's jump to the next one which it seems like it's so obvious, but so many people don't do it. And that's clean up old content. Yes, I'm so glad you brought this up. This is a pet peeve of mine about information on the internet, not published with dates, stuff that's out of date, stuff that is no longer relevant is still there, still linked to. Yes. I scream when I come across it. Well, and you know what I ask? What have you done lately? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no kidding. That's what it makes me think. I, I've, I've often considered putting up a website called, uh, is this Microsoft website dead? Yeah. <laughs> the bone pile. Because there's just a debris, and it's not just Microsoft. All kinds of companies make all kinds of things they put out on the internet and then abandon yeah. and leave running. Absolutely. And one of the really effective ways that you can freshen content or have it look as old as possible is to have your blog feed run on your website And if you legitimately blog, it doesn't have to be every day, but if you do it on a regular basis, weekly, you know, a few times a month, 
if you've at least got content like that that's on there, they know that you're doing work, that you're doing business, and you've got that up there. But if your blog hasn't had anything for two years and you show it on your homepage, get it off. Right. It's better not to have it than to show something two years old. You got it. Here's another big pet peeve of mine related, which is, and it's really the same thing, but it's, you know, when the the tagline or the headline or the title of the blog post is, here's the latest version of blah, 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 get it here. And there's no date on it, right? And the, and, yes. the, and who knows if it's really the latest version because, you know, how do you judge that? It's never the latest version. Completely agree. And a business decision maker is going to skip that because it's not going to be worth his time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just send him to the current stuff. What's the sort of minimum rate for a blog? Is it at least monthly? I think you have to do something monthly. I absolutely do. Because if I look at something right now and it was done, okay, in July, I'll, I'll, I'll let you slide. That that sounds good. But June? Yeah. That feels like months ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it is, it's got to be that cadence. And I guess the question is, when do you, when do you take it down? Well, and you can always archive for the search engines and for your technical readers who are going to find these things valuable because they're not on the latest versions and things like that. And so I'm not suggesting you, you know, archive everything or get rid of everything, but don't showcase it. Don't make it be something that you have to see as soon as you visit the site. Right. I've also noticed this happening more often that folks are taking down old content, but they don't allow, because it still shows up in search engines, they don't 404 it, they redirect to a homepage or something. And that is really tricky, right? That is not a good move. Well, I'm frustrated because it's like, on the one hand, you don't want to provide old content. On the other hand, you don't want to 404 them either. Like, no. But I don't like it when I end up like, okay, I'm at a homepage. Where did the article go? Mm-hmm. That is a relatively new marketing ploy right there. And it, right. It, I, I predict it's going to backfire on marketers. Yeah, I just don't know what's the correct outcome. Like you're saying you know, clean up the old content, but is clean up remove or just de-emphasize? Like, where does this end up? How do I get people in the right place? You know, I think you can come up with what you really need is a content strategy. And that is a whole nother conversation. But a content strategy says anything that's two years old, you still make reference to it. You put it in a library. And on that page, it says, see this URL. And it's in a library somewhere. Right. So, you, you know, you have different choices. Anything that's a year old still lives. Hmm. Things that are five years old, you have archived and they must contact you if they still want that information. And hey, who knows? There might still be a business opportunity there. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to alienate the guy in the process. But it's, right. it's a really interesting dance to say, you know, we've moved on from this. Here's the new thing. Absolutely. Yeah, so I still I still don't feel there's a good answer to that. And the big thing is I want it off the internet enough that it stops being indexed by the search engines. Mm-hmm. I think that Microsoft is a big offender of this too. And so I, I agree. think you have to, you realize that some of the bigger companies do it and that l- allows some of the smaller companies to feel like, well, it's not so bad. The big guys are doing it. But I think Microsoft is a big uh, offender you know, and probably uh, frustrating some people. You know, they're better lately, I think. Good. But, but yeah, in the earlier days of the internet, and it, it's gotten better and better, but even in like the Silverlight days, it was pretty bad. I like, yeah, the way they do the framework now in MSDN, often what's indexed is a feature from an older version of the framework, but the page you're on has a drop down. It says, go to this version of the framework for this. Yeah. So that it's still the same page. You actually got to the right place and you could switch it up to the data set you want. That's, that would be hard to do with anything other than a framework. 
But that's a great content strategy there. Yeah, right. just this idea that there's there's symmetries between these things. So mm-hmm. actually keeping your content coherent. But yeah, the, the the search engine problem is an interesting problem. The new stuff I want you to find is an indexed, and the old stuff I don't want you to find is still indexed. And the thing to remember, too, is, uh, as we talked about briefly, content is everything with marketing. And you have got to carefully consider what you want to exit from in terms of your content, because it may be something that's very valuable, and it shows your continuity in the business, and it shows all the things you've done in the past. So you really want to develop a strategy before you just go and uh, make changes to your content. You want to know that you're going to be consistent in your approach. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about white space. Huh. Many m- meanings for white space. And so in the most practical way, I'm talking about a website. There's no reason under the sun not to use white space mm-hmm. or I'm saying use white space. It is a beautiful thing. It rests the eye. It -hmm. gives you a chance to know where to look versus where not to look. And white space is a wonderful thing. I've seen so many sites where people feel the need to fill every inch of space and there's just no need for it. Absolutely agree. But tech people like that, right? Like, that's wasted space. (laughs) That's right. More is better. Yeah, we're naturally averse to white space as developers. We got to learn to use it. Put it on the the white paper pages. Put put single space and uh, no white white space and just uh, put it on your your white papers, okay? One of my favorite comparisons of this is the difference between a Gucci store and a dollar store. Okay. <laughs> right? Like, just the sense, when you go into a real high-end retailer, it's a ton of white space. Very few items tastefully placed and displayed with so very cute. high prices, as opposed to a dollar store where every inch of that store is filled with stuff. Yep. And so, I will say to you, uh, Richard, which do you want to be known as? Yeah. That's a good question. Like, what I is- think so. Because it's also how we build our software, too. We have a dollar store mentality. More on the forum is better. Yeah. It's very interesting. Okay, here's my last tip, but I have a couple of trivia questions for you guys. I'm going to test your knowledge on this kind of stuff. Uh Uh-oh. My last one is about website maps. Okay. There is still a um, sort of a need for website navigation. And some technical sites still treat the navigation as a map. And they map out every piece of content, have a site, a page on the site that says, this is the content for the site. It's not necessary anymore. All we need is high level. And we know under about us is going to get to the company. It's going to get to the careers. It's going to get to the executives, things like that. You need to think about your content map as just sort of a outline versus a detailed description of everything on the site. Okay. All right. So, little trivia for you. Which countries do you think the most decision makers are required to sign off on a project? There are actually three of them. Which countries would you think would really have these six to nine decision makers engaged? Uh, I think the United States is up there on the list, mostly because we're so um, concerned about litigation. Number one, U.S. is heavy, top heavy with business decision makers. 
So mm. keep that in mind if that's your marketplace. But there are a couple others. Richard, you got a guess for me? Japan. Japan is not on the list. It's surprisingly low, and it could be a cultural thing, but it's surprisingly low on the list. Scandinavia, Germany. Germany and India are round out the three hmm. as where you'll find the most people involved and the most people you have to convince. Wow. And you will not be surprised when I tell you the least amount of decision makers will be found in the country of France. <laughs> <laughs> the decisions are stress. Stress is bad. We should drink more wine. Take a break. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So. I wanted to uh, just kind of close it out before you guys kick me off on thinking about, you know, buying decisions and content really needs to be credible. You need to have references. You need to be concise and you need to be educational. Yeah. You know, it can't be too long, except when you're talking to your uh, technical folks and they really need that, you know, how to type and help technical support. Most in many markets around the globe, videos are more important than ever before. Infographics, as I mentioned, those types of content have become critical to success versus the long written content that everybody has out there. And when you think about Twitter, you know that I'm right, that there's the short version is often what people are looking for. Right. And uh, love to come back at some point and talk to you in detail about content and about uh, content strategies for people uh, building websites and building other technical uh, content for decision makers. So um, we do uh, at Fisher Consultants offer help with messaging frameworks. Would love to talk to your listeners. I've, I talked to so many listeners after that last show and no charge. We just chatted about things, had some ideas, and I really loved making the connections. And I welcome people to reach out to me and uh, make a connection just to chat. Well, hold that thought, Eileen, because Richard, you know what time it is now. It must be that happy time again. Absolutely. Time to announce my new tagline to describe my consulting company. We turn up your awesome. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> Great. <laughs> Carl, I'm a little worried. Do you want me to tell you why? Tell me. I just read this morning that awesome is the worst marketing word you can use. <laughs> That's great. Oh, no. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. <laughs> yeah, you're probably you, you right. You dare to be different. You're probably right. So I remember when um, when Franklin's Net was doing training, We I actually had a marketing guy working for me, and we did a, a sort of a brainstorming session where we came up with the tagline, training developers to work smarter. And I thought that really uh, – really described what we did, that it wasn't about cramming and it wasn't about, um, you know, rote learning. It was about working smarter. So that, you know, that was an interesting exercise that we did. That It's hard to come up with a tagline. It is not easy and it sticks with you for years. Yeah. Yeah. It really does. All right. We got to give something away. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express. But before I tell you who won today, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant.net solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. 
Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Adrian Dabir. Congratulations, Adrian. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Adrian. And uh, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we love to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 shopping spree, a technology shopping spree to one lucky member of that fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And we also like to ask our guests, Eileen, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology now, yep. of any kind, what would you buy? And you know, my first stop would be Jimmy Choo, but they don't have anything, so I know what <laughs> I want, okay? Shoes so, and cologne. Jimmy Choo, yes. But I would love to have a marketing automation tool, and I could name names, but that really seems unfair. But there are many out there that allow you to... Not only keep track of your customers, but allow you with to do nurturing campaigns and allow you to know where they're at in the buying cycle. And they're just tremendous tools and every company needs them now. They're no longer just for the marketing team. It's for the entire company and the entire relationship with the customer. So if I had $5,000, I'd buy it for my company and run all my contacts through that sort of a process. Because those products are not free. No, they are expensive. <laughs> yeah totally fair but yeah it's it's and it's one of those issue things that sort of think yeah, as a tech company should we just make put aside some money and try this out dive into a tool like that yes all right i'm thinking through these seven steps and and really thinking in terms of like you talked you talked about on your blog post as writing web copy Yes. Right. Sort of the indirect marketing thing as opposed to more of a direct marketing thing. All right. I'm put, I'm putting a proposal in front of a company. And do you really talk about writing two different versions of the proposal? One for the business guy, one for the tech guy? No way. It's one version that includes copy for both. So you have to walk a fine line. Hmm. You have to have enough depth for the technical folks, enough technical information so the business guy can say, oh, it looks like my tech guy's getting what he needs, but he can ignore it and he doesn't have to go into that space. So what I recommend a lot of times is to separate it. And what we do is we try to do pillars of information. So one pillar of information might be about saving money. That's where your business decision maker is going to spend his time. The other pillar might be about latest and greatest technology making you advanced, you know, in your industry. And that might be for the technical guy. So he's right. going to draw his eye there. So we really try to segment content in proposals in any kind of written document, but definitely not, not separate documents. No. And then there's also a piece of like building competitive advantage. I mean, saving money seems like an easy win, except that saving money starts on that path of how about I don't spend any. Yeah, right. No, you, you are so right. But seriously, People try to overcomplicate things. The right. business decision maker wants to know, do we need it and can we save money? And right. you know what? Don't rewrite history. That's what he wants to know. That's what right. she wants to know. Mm -hmm. That's what you need to tell him. 
You, it sounds like you get that into the first paragraph. Yep. Exactly. Like, think of it as a press release. You want to lead with, you will save money. If you can say those words, you will be golden. You'll be better off anyway. Yes. You got it. You've also got to be right. <laughs> you have to be right. And so that is a challenge for an industry person, perhaps, who their solutions are going to be on the higher end and they're not going to be the most cost effective. Then we really go into the challenge of how do you sell the business decision maker when all he really cares about is money? Right. Well, and that's the whole thing here is when software, I've done the ROI analysis on a lot of software. And when software is good, it's not a little bit good. It's you're 10 times more productive. Like there's these massive gains that can be had there, but we rarely drill into the ROI in that detail. Right. But we absolutely can. And that's a way for us to show you'll save money versus make money kind of approach that, you know, if you look at maintenance costs, if you look at costs to replace every two years, you know, right. if you, you say, we're, you're not going to have to, this is going to be a five-year solution. Things like that really help a business decision maker understand that cost savings. Yeah. So when one of the battles you get into is I'm a service provider providing you development resources. You know, why am, why am I going to, how am I going to convince you to spend the hundred dollars an hour with my team here in right. the U.S. versus the $40 an hour from a team in a developing country? Because you are better, faster and going to get you to market sooner. Yep. That's right. You don't, you don't give any technical reasons whatsoever. Exactly. And you don't use the word awesome. I've learned. <laughs> <laughs> but this sort of goes counter to the saving money mantra. Yeah. Yeah, you need to convince them that an hour spent with your consulting company is, you know, worth three, two and a half times the other guy. Two and a half times the other guy. That's right. You got it. It's a challenge. That's why you come up with messaging frameworks. You try to come up with some solid thoughts that you can consistently use and you stick with them and you get the proof. Proof is critical. We haven't even talked about case studies and things I was just like that. Gonna, I was just going to ask you. You got some great stories for us? I'm sure you do. Yeah. If you don't have case studies, you're, you're out of business with the decision maker. So what we often do is with new companies or smaller companies where they can't get permission to use the company's names is we do scenarios and we, you know, uh, build a scenario on what the project was like, you know, how we did it what the success looked like, and we don't name names. So there are ways to create case studies or case scenarios mm -hmm. versus the study where you name the name. And then I've seen people who just name the company names and don't put any facts behind it. Very ineffective. Having a logo with nothing behind it, you'd be better off making up a story. <laughs> you really would. Because yeah. how do I know? You stole the logo off their website. How do I know you're actually doing business yeah. with them? Right. Well, and that's and still, get, you, you know, one thing's a case study. The other thing is a reference. Yeah. Exactly. References are so important. If you can get a few key references, and you have to work that relationship. You have to have made that person, uh, gave them a promotion or really work that relationship to get somebody to be willing to talk on the phone or via email to someone to say, yes, this is a good solution and here's why. But references, nothing takes the place of reference. No case study, 
No success. Nothing takes the place of an actual customer reference. Well, and how you get references is by knocking it out of the park consistently. Absolutely. You know, you have to have somebody who's going to take a leap of faith for whatever reason and hire you. And then you have to absolutely, and I hate to say it, but just be awesome. You have to knock it out of the park for them. It's not enough to have the opportunity. You have to be ready to take that opportunity and to go above and beyond their expectations. And that's how you do it, folks. (laughs) And I I have found that clients offer to be references more often than you have to ask them. And (laughs) granted, it's not every client, but you will find some that will offer you that opportunity because it was so successful for you. Yeah. Yep. And do you think, is it have to be the reference call or is the reference letter good enough? No, it's got to be a live conversation or a conversation or an email, some exchange, a letter, you know, it's like, so like old school in my opinion. Hmm. So, well, and, but you, you know, I found with BDMs, with the business guys, Yep. Something more physical seems to matter more. Like reading, they're less prone to reading websites. It's like the, I find this with the, con- doing the conferences as well. The brochure works on the business guy. Like having something physical in their hand seems to really matter. Well, and you also, when you speak at conferences, conferences do a great job how to convince your, you know, the guy writing the check that you should go. And so I think you have a point there, mm. especially with conferences that, you know, that kind of tangible thing you can hold. But I don't dismiss case studies. They are, they are very, very valuable for both technical and business decision makers. They really are. Yeah, they, they're exactly. So you, you get to imagine yourself having the experience someone else has had. Exactly. This could be you. Exactly. Insert your name here. Right. And nothing really takes the place of a face-to-face meeting, does it? No, nothing does. And how often can you get that? You know, more often than you think. At a trade show, for instance, or in an industry event where two people will happen to both be there, 15 minutes, 5 minutes, 10 minutes, mm-hmm. a conversation, it's possible. And the other thing to uh, remember is... Don't be afraid to ask for the reference. There's no reason to be afraid to ask for the reference. The reference costs you nothing. You don't have to write up anything. All it is is a short exchange of information between two people. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and those little touches seem to matter a lot. At, uh, at Strange Loop, we found that the booth wasn't as effective as the suite. I believe that. Interesting. You know, it was meeting some, you meet some folks, and you give them a card. It's like, hey, we're having a gathering for key people at this suite where we, you know, cocktails and, 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 uh, canapes, but it was only worthwhile if there was only as many people as there were folks to talk to them. Yeah. So it make, was not a lot of people. Make them feel special too, you know? That's an approach that makes people feel very special. Yeah, to go go to something private. And it's surprising how cheap it is to print business cards, but having a little card, a business card size thing that was their invitation to that suite. Yes. That, that had a lot of got a lot of traction. Absolutely. Love that idea. Yep, I've seen that work. Um Eileen, do you have any more success stories about um clients that you turned around when you thought just when you thought uh, you blown it, you know, something happened in, that you did right. And I don't know, anything interesting? I've never blown it. Well, you know, almost. Maybe you felt like you did and it turned around. I don't know. Actually, I did with the MVP program, but that really seems like a whole nother show. <laughs> 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 so oh, that's I awesome. just really, yeah, I won't go there. But 
I had a client in South America who had a business that was declining. And he had, um, you know, some good relationships with large software companies in the area and got some referrals, but, you know, not, not a lot of business referrals, a few. Did some volunteer stuff, evangelism types of things, but not a lot. You know, he wasn't the first considered. And we took an approach to market him and his brand and the information and the way he presented it. And we did things like create a template that he would regularly communicate with these large software companies and tell them, hey, here's what my customers are doing. Here's how they're using your technology to succeed. This was phenomenally successful because what did the company get? The voice of the customer. The company got feedback on directly on their products, things like that. Mm. And he ended up telling us in the end that he started out with this idea that this was going to skyrocket his image. Instead, what it ended up doing is skyrocketing his paycheck. Oh. And he ended up feeling like his personal brand was greatly enhanced, but a lot of the direct communication methods that really delivered exactly the message you wanted to these business decision makers mm. were the, was the most effective way to go. There's nothing quite like knowing exactly what to say to the right person. Yeah, that really brings it home. This gets back into that whole brand exercise, work exercise thing there. I found as a consultant, I started raising my rates because I only had so many cycles, and I got a better class of client in the process. Right. Love it. Love it. Yeah, this been. I guess there's a whole conversation there about firing bad customers. Oh. I could tell you a few if I could, but I can't, there, so I won't. There's another call. That's another call, Richard. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a drink. That's yeah, you, me, and Eileen have a have a scotch sometime. Yeah, talk about we've, had, that. we've had a few of those kinds of drinks, but just this idea that you can, you know, this works both ways. Totally. Assessing the caliber of your customer as well as your customer assessing you. Exactly. Yeah. You can tell when you've stepped in a pile of it, you know, and it's going to be a hard time no matter what you do. And and those are customers you don't want. Unfortunately, you know, business business decision makers, they have to learn their own lesson about dealing with consultants and, and clients that they're not always going to find what they think they're going to find. Absolutely. Sometimes they have to change as well. Yeah, it's an interesting problem. How do you get to – how much tailoring can you do here when you're talking about business uh, decision makers? Can it, should I be writing a unique proposal to every organization? Like, I don't think I build a custom website for each potential customer. It's got, they're all sort of the same, but it strikes me that tailoring to a particular customer is pretty valuable, if a little hard. It's a little bit hard. And that's why I uh, really advocate the messaging framework because that allows you to repeat the same thing. And what we tend to recommend is that for each unique customer, you look for a case study or a scenario that most closely matches their business and share that with them in order to personalize it. And that's sort of the way you get away from it looking exactly like the last guy's type of proposal. Mm. But that's the recommendation we make. Look for industry, you know, types that match and types of titles that match and things like that for uh, something unique in the proposal. I mean, you do want them to feel special. So using, you know, comment, you, you don't really understand this if you're just sending us the same stuff each time. I've definitely seen situations where we've alienated a customer because we sent them a case study. It was totally inappropriate. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Know your customer. Do you think this is a specific skill? Like if I'm smart in my organization, I should have a person who's doing this rather than me trying to do it? 
it's an interesting question. I have seen software developers who are amazing at doing this, who really do understand the difference, but it's hard. If your job is to think all day about technology, you don't lift your head up and say, and by the way, how's this going to save this guy who's got the check in his hand? How's this going to save him money? So mm -hmm. I think it's expected that you wouldn't have that expertise in a software development company. If you do have a marketing person, it's possible that that expertise is there, but it's something you kind of get, have to hone. It's a skill that you have to hone over time. And, uh, you know, with a little coaching, I think uh, people can get there and there, there are things online, but nothing specific. It's kind of a, a technology industry skill set that has developed through the years. Yeah. You know, this interesting point about building software. How can I possibly trust you to build software that will save my company money if you can't explain to me how it's going to save me money? Mm. You got it. So the, the guy who's good at building the requirements is actually figuring out what the customer needs should be able to articulate that stuff as well. Yes, the product manager. The product manager should be able to articulate this. And usually in a larger software company, the product management side of the business is tasked with creating that messaging framework. And then the salespeople and all the promotional marketing people are the ones who use it. Right. One of, one of my, um, well, should I say, one of the things that has been a problem for me in the past was assessing the level of trust that the customer has in me. Uh, and because I tend to trust people more uh, up front than they trust me, you know what I'm saying? So, so w what I have done is I have done some things in good faith uh, on the outset just to sort of prove the trust, you know, and it sometimes it works in my favor, sometimes it backfires. So I don't know what you think about, you know, that first contact when you have a first meeting, you figure out something that you can do to just sort of knock out of the park and, and sort of give them some immediate relief and some help. Maybe it's a small project or something like that. Um, how much, you know, paperwork needs to be done before you go into something like that? Yeah, I've learned myself, and first of all, Carl, who doesn't trust you? Come on. Well, you know, people who don't know me. Okay. Yeah. Because I trust you. Well, of course. So, uh, I what I have learned is giving too much information is dangerous, too. So, right. I, I have learned to high-level or up-level the message about if you're going to save money, say maybe three bullets on how you're going to save money, but don't give the details away on the actual steps you will take, like right. hiring less developers or, you know, we will uh, we will outsource some of this overseas, things like that. Like, don't give away that part. So don't give I think away your you secret sauce. It, yeah, exactly. Keep your secret sauce. It's yours. You've earned it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these this uh, the one I'm thinking of happens when, you know, you're you're in that point where they they don't know what to do first. And you say, all right, well, what's something that's a pressing need that I can do for you? Yeah. And and you go and do that, maybe without, you know, maybe on a handshake. But maybe you don't get the business then. Maybe you don't it's get a, the business, yeah. It's a very tough decision to make. And I think we're back to the good customers and the bad customers. And you have to really make a judgment call. And sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And the people skills. I mean, you really have to, you're thrown, as a developer, especially without, you know, 
being a business person, you're thrown into these relationships that you have to sort of assess what you think their, uh, you know, response is going to be to a particular step. And it may be a perfectly reasonable thing to do uh, from your perspective, but from theirs, you may get uh, the evil eye or the questioning or, or whatever, but, um, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. That's, that sounds like a show. You got some uh, resources you can point us to Eileen. Absolutely. I sent you some already. I sent you some URLs, but I can send you that LinkedIn tool that I talked about in the beginning to assess your uh, LinkedIn, whether it's good or not. Great. So I'll send that to you. And I got one minute to jump on my other call. So I'm going to hang up and say thank you very much for this opportunity. It presented me with new business and lots of new contacts last time. Absolutely. We'll do it again. Thanks, Eileen. All right. Thanks, guys. See ya. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band.